Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about tabletop role-playing games, board games, and tabletop war games. I'm Troy, the host. My pronouns are he, him. And with me today, as always, Ed. Yeah, my name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them. I've uh, got a special brew of hot bean water and mushrooms for our journey into the Astral Sea this morning. Yes, and despite what I may have said in a previous episode, we're going back to Spelljammer. And may, may I just say a perfunctory womp, 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 Yeah, we're going to discuss 5th edition Spelljammer, which is a setting that we both really like, and a set of books that we were very disappointed by. Yep. But before we get into that, we have a segment on this podcast called The Weekend Hobby. Woo! So, what have we done this last weekend hobby? I'll go first. I had both of my Eberron campaigns. Uh, They are both in the midst of dungeon crawls. The first one of them entered into the dungeon in the lost Hobgoblin Fortress in the Bashik Mountains. Uh, they encountered some Dolgrims and Dolgaunts, which are horrible, abomination, like, flesh-warped goblins and hobgoblins that are... The Dolgrims are, like, two goblins smashed together. Sounds terrible. And the Gaunts are, like, hobgoblins without eyes and with tentacles coming out of their backs. And, yeah, monk levels, almost. Uh, they also encountered a flesh-warped minotaur, which was, uh, fun. Um, especially fun when it knocked the Warforged, like, back off his feet and then charged into the rest of the party and, you know, really made them hurt. I hope somebody brought a ball of yarn to help him get out of that, uh, labyrinth. Yeah, it, it did not go well. Uh, there were also some basilisks, a couple of intellect devourers, just to really scare the party. Um, oh, and they ran into a goblin who had been captured while trying, a a goblin and his harpy companion who had been captured while investigating these ruins. So they've got another person with them who may have their own agenda. Dun, dun, dun. But they cleared out most of the first floor of that dungeon, and now they're getting ready to, I think, hide and take a long rest while they prep to descend deeper. They may have descended deeper on their own if the warlock hadn't uh, managed to grab a rope after falling off of a rickety bridge and <laughs> nearly plunging to his death. Taking the express elevator. Yes, the express elevator through the crevasse into the lowest level of the dungeon. Only quick action by another spellcaster who had feather fall and then some good uses of rope managed to save him. That's why you always bring your 50-foot rope. Oh, they needed more than that because he fell 60 feet. (laughs) They had to tie several together and then toss them down to him. Uh, In the other campaign, the party uh, was in the midst of heading through a dungeon looking for the Rakshasa that had stolen an ancient and powerful kyber shard that was imprisoning part of the magical power of a overlord demon. Uh, They found him when they went back and started to, like, check the doors that they hadn't gone through the first time. Um, And after dealing with some uh, flame skulls that they didn't realize they had to, like, spray holy water on to keep them from coming back, um, and that they had defeated them the first time, but they hadn't done anything about it, so they just reformed and messed with the party again. Um... They entered into the Rakshasa's lair and fought him and were on the verge of defeating him when he plane shifted away because he's a reoccurring villain and he's going to be back. And he's going to be pissed because they destroyed his shield golem. But they found the crystal and then they uh, were very interested in the strange statues holding bowls of dried blood, and so they fed some blood from a cultist into those bowls, and it unlocked the sealed door where a vampire was, you know, trapped. He was the original owner of this dungeon, and the Rakshasa had imprisoned him. 
And if they had busted him out earlier, he would have helped them. Maybe. I mean, do you really want to trust a vampire to help you? That's kind of where they were at. Um, they hadn't gone to the area where his wives were. They were vampire spawn. Um, so, like, they hadn't killed any of them. So he thanked them and, like, gave them an item that he had hidden away. And so now the barbarian has a cloak of bats. Nice. Which allows him to turn into a bat. Which he's, like, super pumped about that being a thing now. Um, which is going to make my life more difficult, but it'll be entertaining. I've, I'm enjoying where this party's going. They put some serious hurt onto that Rakshasa, even if the guy summoning a dinosaur did not realize that uh, it, it, you've summoned a dinosaur, great. But the dinosaur can't hurt the Rakshasa because the dinosaur does not have magical attacks. Mm -hmm. And the Rakshasa is immune to non-magical attacks. Sorry, I meant to summon a magical dinosaur. Yeah, it, it, if he had that ability, he totally would have used it, but summoning a dinosaur using the magic item he had gotten in a previous session was totally something he was down for. And I that's basically been my weekend hobby. Ed, what have you been up to? My week's been uneventful because I was on vacation. Uh, so I was out at the beach looking at the actual sea, uh, not the astral sea. Uh, now that I'm home, I really haven't done a whole lot because my office is kind of in a state of disarray. I put up some shelves to try and organize my stuff better. I replaced some light fixtures. Uh, so I probably want to get things more cleaned up before I try and do anything else. Uh, right now I'm working on a couple of characters for Game of Thrones and pretty much the only other game stuff I did was I went back to playing Rainbow Six Siege for the first time since like 2016. And uh, it took 2020 breaking my brain to really realize like what a massive piece of propaganda that video game is. But after that realization, I thought this could actually make for an interesting board slash war game. Uh, doing something like 40K because you would have asymmetrical uh asymmetrical teams, hidden objectives. Uh, you know, you could do some interesting terrain setups with like fortified terrain and, you know, hidden information where the defenders, they move around, but the attackers can't see them until, you know, they get a, a ping on a player. And then maybe if they have a special ability, they can kind of track where they're going. But if they lose line of sight, they go back to being a, uh, a token kind of like in uh, Space Hulk. So I think what you really want to do is create a board game setup that uses infinity rules. Yeah, that's that's kind of the vibe that I was getting because playing it, I was like, wow, this game really is like infinity. The instant you pop your head out, you get your face blown off. Um, yeah, but I but I mean, infinity already has camo marker tokens and stuff like that. So you could probably hack infinity rules. Yeah. Into a board game setup. Yeah, because my first thought was like, you know, it, the game would feel less scummy if they replaced all the uh, propaganda and military worship for like 40k. If you had like, you know, Tyranid cultists versus Empire or just kind of mix all the all the various players in there like they do with the game, how they have all the various police and militaries just kind of all mixed up onto a team. So like, that'd be kind of cool, but it has potential for being an interesting uh board game and i try to remember there was some company that was doing a lot of those that they kind of flopped recently but it feels like maybe two or three years ago it could have been something that one of those companies would picked up and say hey we're making a board game based on rainbow six siege um so uh, there could be there could be something there but i'd have to actually write down my ideas for once yeah um I also, I guess, I made a couple of maps uh, for uh, necromantic airship uh, spelljammer type things. So. Oh yeah, you sent me that. That yeah. was pretty cool. Yeah, I finished that up. So there's some really cool ones now. Um. Perhaps show those around or something. Um. Yeah, maybe I'll put it throw on those the, up on our Twitter. Put it on the interwebs. 
Oh, I already, it's on Reddit now, but... Um, yeah, let let the whole, I'll like, throw it three on people that well. look at our Twitter uh, see that. Yes, maybe we'll get more. Um, and I'm working on a few other things, some old-school-style, like, black-and-white dungeon maps. Yeah, yeah. Um, inspired by various campaigns I've been running. Over, and just general things. Uh, yeah, so that's that. That's been the Weekend Hobby. So let's talk Spelljammer Part 2. Oh, boy. So, between our previous Spelljammer episode and right now, the Spelljammer 5th Edition setting came out. Yay! This was a release consisting of three 64-page books and a Dungeon Master screen, if you bought it in physical version. And to say it has been slightly controversial on the internet might be an understatement. It's been a really disappointing release from game from Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> yeah, you heard what I almost said there. Yep. Um, and we're going to talk about... We, let's just start with a high-level overview. What does it contain? Not well, a lot. Well, it contains some character options. There's a couple of backgrounds for making characters that are like from the Spelljammer setting. The Astral Drifter is someone who spent a long time in the Astral Sea. The Wild Spacer is someone who has spent a bunch of time or grew up in wild space. So in space between... In the space between planets and stars and, like, on ships. Then there were a few new races. The Astral Elf, which is interesting because um, they're basically elves that can teleport a little. Uh, the Auto Gnomes, which are... Gnome Warforged. Let's let's just... Gnome Warforged. <laughs> they get some cool little interesting features, but they have a lot of the same features that Warforged do. Uh, mechanical Nature, Centuries Rest, some stuff like that. Uh, the GIF, which are a classic. Or perhaps it's GIF. Nobody Even they knows. are not sure. Uh, they're hippo people. They... You know, have a cool little slight damage thing, boost thing. They get firearms. They are hippo people, so they're strong. And then the Hatters, the Hattersy, which are sort of uh, monkey people, but they also have wings that they can use to glide. Um, they're cool. I like them. No, no complaints about them. Same with the plasmoids, which are ooze people. I love the plasmoids. And they're I, my favorite. They're fun. They're ooze people. They can, they're amorphous. They can change their shape. Like, that's their real bonuses. And then, of course, the thrykeen, the mantis folk. Or insect folk. They're, you know, six arms. Well, four arms and two legs, but six-limbed. Um, sort of... They can change color to blend into things. They have telepathy. They're cool. I did like I did like the idea that uh, that telepathic communication uh, it has to be basically consensual. So if one person doesn't want to talk to you, like they can't even they can't even hear you. It's not like you're just talking to a wall. It's like they literally cannot hear what you're trying to tell them. <laughs> it's like nope, talk to the brain. I ain't having it. Yeah. Um. The races. Great. Love to see these guys in there. Love to see the Thrykeen back. Love to see the Gift back. The elves. I, I don't know if we needed another flavor of elves, but it's fine. I like auto gnomes because it just gives you a basis for like a slightly sillier, smaller Warforged. Cool. So the first part of that book, great. The second part involves astral adventuring, which has some stuff describing how spell jamming works. Uh, it talks about how ships contain air, how ships have gravity, and then has two pages about the astral plane and the entirety of the setting, including all of wild space and traveling between all of that. And then contains two new spells, one of which is you get air in space, one of which is creating the thing that allows a ship to travel through space. Three magic items, which is a spacesuit 
the thing that allows a spaceship to travel through space, and a thing that acts like a GPS for traveling through space. And then it spends 20 pages describing different ships. Yeah. Um, there is a tiny, less than a page section on sh combat between ships, which basically says... Wing it. Just, just board the other ship. Um, is essentially what it says. Just, just move closer and board the other ship. I mean, even, even if they did like a very stripped down kind of like ship combat where you're basically treating the ship as a player character and it has, you know, a set list of like things that it can do, kind of like how your player characters work and your player character's influence how that works and it's just very stripped down it's not like you're playing uh uh battlefleet gothic that would have made sense given just kind of how rules light in general 5e likes to be but just to say just board their ship it's like that's less than not even trying it took more work to come up with that idea than just to be like yeah make it similar to ground player combat yeah i mean each ship has certain um weapons equipped but those just um they're just attacks and it requires multiple actions to use so you kind of assume that the ship's crew is doing it and the player characters are like boarding and fighting because That's they settle let them use their things and each ship has lame. a very small stat block um that is honestly really needs more work ships can be destroyed via just you know players shooting at them in two rounds if the players are high enough level it's not not great um the ships uh, feel kind of... It feels like they knew they needed to have a bunch of ships because previous editions have had a bunch of ships. But I feel like 20 pages of ships is too much for how short the book is at only 64 pages. I mean, honestly, it would have been better if they That's had... a third of it? If they'd had, like, these are your various classes of ships. Here's a couple of examples. And then here is how you create custom ones rather than filling yeah. it up with a whole bunch of other ones that it's like, hey, these are some things you might come across, but give, like, here's just a generic spell jammer. Here's a Nautilus. Here's a, I don't know, a killer clown spaceship. And that then just... the Star Galleon, yeah. Yeah, and then just be like, okay, now if you want to build your own ship, here is how you do that process, and you wouldn't have to waste, you know, 20-odd pages with with a bunch of ships that may or may not get used. Yeah, I mean, you could also have packed them in a little tighter if you used slightly less art, because uh, each ship has lots and lots of art. The book has amazing, gorgeous art. It's just that a lot of it, it seems like they're using the art to avoid writing enough content. Because art takes up a lot of room in the book, and the content has weird blank spots. It's the D&D &D equivalent of typing up your paper in 24-point triple-spaced font. Yeah, they pad this shit out. Uh, the last section is a couple of pages about the Rock of Brawl, which is an asteroid settlement um, that you can place anywhere in wild space. Uh, and it just talks a little bit about what the city is like. Um, this is a good section. It's, again, super short. Um, and it's also, like, the only detail on a place within the entire setting. Yep. Like, I, I like the Rock of Brawl. It's neat. But also, it's really kind of generic and then like even in the the monster manual there's like so they describe so many different unique 
individuals, I guess, it's, you know, you could at least say it's like, well, here is the killer clown planet. Here is what happened with the uh, androgynous squid people who arted so hard they destroyed, you know, their civilization. Um, here is a dead planet of vampires. It's like it's right there and they didn't use it. Yeah, I really feel like they should have devoted another 10 pages or so, even less than that, you know, five or six pages just to talking about other wild space systems that already existed because we had second edition rules for, we had second edition descriptions of them. Just talking about, hey, here's a wild space system. Here are the planets in it. Here's what's going on with it. You can use this in your campaign. Um previous edition like the second edition spelljammer had that where it had a little sidebar talking about here's what's going on in uh the forgotten realms setting here's what all the other planets have going on uh here's what's going on in the dragonlance setting here's what all the other planets have going on um and in this case you could also talk about you know the solar system that the killer space clowns are from or the solar system that something you could talk about something as is it really lacks any sort of detail about places to go or things to see in space which is what i wanted from an astral adventurer's guide yeah to me it gives the to me it gives the vibe that they were they weren't necessarily thinking spelljammer is going to be an entire setting on its own let's let's have this be a way for players to travel between different worlds but not do it in a uh, planescape type way that's that's the well, vibe they, i got yeah we'll get into that a little later um so the next of the three books is the astral menagerie which is a monster manual. It's 64 pages. It contains a bunch of different monsters. It's got cool stat blocks. It's got, again, good art. It has a couple of really interesting setting components about, like, the space clowns or the um, cuttlefish people who blew up their own planet or, you know, some of the terrifying monstrosities like cosmic horrors and uh, so on and so forth. The jammer leeches, you know, can attach to your ships. The lunar dragons are actually super interesting, as are solar dragons. Um, My favorite's the murder comet. The murder comet, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff here. And so this book is actually really good and, you know, quite useful. The vampirates are great. Love to see vampirates. It also, I noticed that there's a, I feel like there's a very different shift in tone between the Astral Adventurer's Guide and the Monster Manual. I feel like the Monster Manual very much plays into the goofy uh, nature of Spelljammer, whereas the actual Adventurer's Guide itself tries to play it more straight-faced. Maybe that's just me, but I feel like that's a tone change that I noticed. Cut that. The Menagerie has only one writer and one rules person. Ah, that might explain uh, it. The core book has three writers and two rules people. Designed by committee. Yeah, well... I mean, that's I, I know that's how that's how books and games get written, but... Yes, and the whole they're the shared... thing, actually, it does kind of feel like designed by committee or like, you know, last minute shenanigans. Yeah, I mean, it shares the same writer and rules developer across them, but there's more writers and rules developer in the core book than there are in the menagerie. But I feel like perhaps because just one person was working on the menagerie writing that it is it feels a little more consistent yeah that, that um, tracks and perhaps that's what's going on there um interestingly i suppose that means the stuff we like in the core book is probably from that person um 
I'm not sure if that's actually true or not, but the design team for this set of books was very small. Especially when you look at, like, the marketing team that was listed for it, which is huge. Well, now we know where all the money went. Um, yeah, presumably. And then the last thing is that they have a adventurer, a 64-page adventurer called The Light of Zarsis, which is in the vein of Flash Gordon pulp sci-fi adventures. Cool. I have not read it in full. I have skimmed it because I may be playing in it or I may be running it. Same. And I don't want huge amounts of spoilers. It looks interesting. I obviously I can't say if it's good or bad without playing it. Um, the I will say I've seen complaints from people saying that, oh, you have to homebrew a lot of stuff. But I don't know if that's really the case because, again, haven't played it and also... People complain about all sorts of things. Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the reviews that I saw, they're like, it's adequate. It's a good introduction to, you know, Spelljammer Five E as is, but you know, don't expect greatness. Yeah, and I will note that it has really vague descriptions of two solar systems, Ooh. um, which are the essentially that's what it gives you for. Uh, setting is two vague solar systems and you stop at the rock of brawl briefly i mean so honestly i feel like rather than the product that we got maybe they should have just handed Spelljammer off to goodman games where they've been doing their uh 5e rewrites of old second edition material and just done it as is See, what's really interesting to me is that this has been a really disappointing setting book, but some of the other setting books have been good. Um, so the primary thing that the thing I'm primarily going to compare this to is the Eberron setting book, uh, because I'm a huge fan of Eberron. I was highly invested in that one and I know a lot about the lore and I care about it. So I can compare between these two. And I've also looked on the internet and seen, you know, what people were saying at the time, what people have said since, what reviews are like, what forum comments are like. And the Eberron book is a single book. It is 320 pages. It contains, uh, I want to say three, four races options, so slightly fewer. It contains an entire new player class because the Artificer had to come from somewhere and everybody likes Artificers. Uh, contains, I only think, only one background, because uh, House Agent, which allows you to play as one of the dragon-marked houses. Um, and it contains some cool rules for, like, group patrons and some great advice on running adventures in the setting. And, like, how to run adventures using different factions and different groups for antagonists and working for different uh, protagonist organizations. And then a huge chunk of setting, both a like whole chapter about all the various kingdoms and places to go, and then another whole chapter about the city of Sharn that is honestly like four times as long as the entire Rock of Brawl section in the Spelljammer book. It's much more detailed and it has a lot of like charts of places and random event uh sections that you can roll up to see what happens um to see who you might encounter if you ride a lightning rail or what might what event might occur if you're wandering around the lower city of sharn just don't do that um, which which are super cool um i will say the ask the Spelljammer book has a couple of neat charts of like random encounters and stuff but those feel kind of like i don't know if they're an afterthought but they are not they're not enough to actually flesh out the book, and there's not, and there's only a handful of them. Um, so Eberron was a little controversial because people didn't like some of the mechanical changes to the Warforged as they were presented in the book instead of the previous Unearthed Arcana, and some people thought that the Artificers had better spells in the Unearthed Arcana. And some people thought that the adventure at the back of the book was a little short. And that was pretty much it. Nobody had complaints about the, like, setting content. Nobody had complaints about the races, aside from Warforged, 
being a little weaker than they had been in the playtest documents. And everything I said was incredibly positive about like the level of detail that went into Sharn, the ideas for like supporting the dungeon master by giving them stuff to do if you're working for this group or that group or if your enemies are this group or that group it gave a lot of stuff to work with and everyone was really positive about that and it gave a lot of detail to the setting and a decent number of stat blocks for enemies specific to the setting and it also said you know use these use that for just normal stuff um i feel like spelljammer is a serious step backwards in terms of content, because the setting is missing, like, all of the setting content. Where Where's my Spelljammer content? Um, and I don't, I don't like this. This is not good. Uh, and I mentioned Planescape, and we needed to circle back to Planescape a little. Uh, the announcement is that next year they'll be producing a Planescape book. They've also said that it's going to be a three-book set, just like the Spelljammer one. Oh, boy, I didn't see that. That does not bode well. Yeah, I'm not excited anymore. I'm wary. They're, because they're pulling a G-dubs this, on us. This was not a great, like, first example of your three-book set. Um, If your three-book set for this had been amazing, like, if... The Astral Adventurer's Guide had included everything it had, plus five or six pages on the actual setting content, and you had included some rules, even if they were optional rules for ship-to-ship combat, I think I would have been happy. Like, that's all I really needed, is where's the rest of the setting information, and where's the, like, here's how ships actually fight, here's something, here's some rules on how to do that, and maybe... Maybe give me some more cool magic items that are setting specific. Um, the the spell jammer magic item the the only really interesting magic item the only one that I would be like oh I will I'll give this to my players as something cool is the fish suits which are spacesuits. Um, there's no I don't know I want something that allows you to why do we not have like an amulet of air bubble that just allows you to breathe in space uh we have the spell air bubble why why is there not like an amulet that does that because you you're supposed to do that on your own you're the dm why is there not a like wand of comets that summons a comment or a like helm of the solar dragon that gives you cool abilities or you know uh, some no, a cloak of stars that does something like where's the interesting magic items that make it unique and feel like they're specific to this setting rather than just the really generic like here's a thing that allows you to see where you are in space or here's the thing that allows you your ship to go or here's a spacesuit like the flavor isn't there this is the blandest setting book i've ever read and and I've read some of the some of the uh, Magic the Gathering setting books. I've read a lot of setting books. I've looked at you know lore for a number of different RPGs and all sorts of things. And this is the blandest like officially published fancy release good art book I have ever seen. There's very little flavor in the actual setting guide. Um, it just outside of the races and the monsters there's not a lot going on like can we have a section that talks about what the groups of antagonists are like the imperial elven navy and the neoki slavers and the mind flayers and like what sort of plots they might be involved in or like adventure hooks for them because the serious lack of adventure hooks is kind of Kind of weird. Um, there is a single chart in the start of the book that talks about 
how you could pull someone into a Spelljammer campaign. It is a D10 chart. So there are 10 options. Oh, yeah, I saw that. It's pretty weak. Part of, like, a good chunk of them start on the Rock of Brawl. Yep. And the other ones are that somebody is just gives you a spell jamming ship. Um, like, uh, it, it's not really adventure hooks. It's just like, here's how you start a campaign. It's a MacGuffin. Yeah, a good chunk of them are just MacGuffins. And here's how to start a campaign. The only one that I'm actually interested in, like, that seems like it could start up a really solid campaign is the Moby Dick joke. Which one was that again? I think number six. An explorer needs your help to slay a white space whale mm. that keeps attacking her ship. Yeah, that'd be a good um, one. That, that's basically it. The, the rest of them aren't really... I was not... Impressed. <laughs> Impressive. Um, like, they don't draw much of, like, here's what you can do for beyond this, beyond just giving your players a starship. Um, and that's, that's the weakness of this book, is that it doesn't give you much to work on. It gives you, the, like, basic pieces. Here's your ships. Here's your races. But it doesn't have any advice for running campaigns in space. It doesn't have places to go in space. It doesn't. It doesn't even have like, like the bare have minimum. villains. It. It doesn't have a setting. Yeah. It it's some components to move around on a board, but it doesn't sell you the board. It puts a lot of work on the dungeon master who's going to try and run a spell jamming campaign, and. It it's just not, not what I wanted. Nope. Like, where's the rest of the setting? I mean, like, my hope could be that if Wizards, you know, sees the reception for Spelljammer and they think, oh, this didn't go over well, let's do a better job with uh, uh, Planescape. Maybe the Planescape one will be better, but with just, like, how much marketing and hype there was around it, all, I mean, on their corporation, honestly, all they're going to look at is, did people buy it? And they're, and they're going to be like, sweet, let's do that again. It, there was a lot of marketing hype, and the book looked very pretty, and it promised people new racial options that people really wanted, because people want to play GIF, people want to play Thrykeen, and now they're official and you can. And so it sold. And I don't think it should have sold as much as it did. Um, Had I not made a pre-order... And if I had read reviews of the product before I actually got it, because I mean, I'm something of a D&D completionist. Like I buy most of the books that come out just for the sake of doing it. But if I was not already like really wanting Spelljammer and had read the reviews, I would have been like, oh, I'm going to save 60 bucks and just buy the second edition PDF on drive-thru RPG. Yes. Um, I bought it again as well. Similar reasoning. I'm less of a completionist, I think, but I very much like Spelljammer and I want more campaign settings, so I bought it. And yeah, I've since bought the second edition PDF off DriveThru RPG so that I can like Play have actual <laughs> setting detail if I want to run a Spelljammer campaign. Because that's where the lore is. It's in old things that you need to buy a PDF for for five bucks. Which I would encourage anyone who's listening to this who actually wants to learn Spelljammer lore to go out and buy the second edition Spelljammer books from DriveThruRPG or somewhere else. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, they should have just given it to Goodman Games and said, hey, please convert this into 5e. Because No, they should have given it to me. And I would have done it. Eh, yeah. Knoll Country Games. I like it. Um... Yeah, uh, I mean, they, they hire all the artists, and I'll convert 2nd Edition into 5e, and it'll have pretty much all the content you've got here, but also a pile more setting stuff, because I love a good sci-fi system, 
and I read a load of science fiction, and I would create so many crazy things. Gearbeard the Modron Pirate. Arg. And his mechanical crew. Um, cities floating in... Abandoned cities floating in space. Uh, yeah, I, rem ancient I remember seeing something in the Astral Adventurer's Guide about, uh, like, building bases and, like, the floating corpses of old gods, and yet... That none of those were described in the book. I was like, you you talked oh, it, about there's it. There's a side, there's a sidebar that says there are corpses of ancient gods floating in the astral sea. Yeah, and I'm like, okay, that's it. That's that's the sidebar. That's the entire entire description. Yeah, I don't I don't know what's up with wizards lately. I feel like they're just kind of doing weird shit in general because like magic has been at least in my opinion just a little weird with how they're like trying to change things up and i i don't know if they're sorry i dropped my paintbrush and had to lean away from the mic uh, i don't know if they're like under pressure from like stockholders or their board of directors is getting antsy or what's going on but i feel like there's something happening behind the scenes that we're not privy to yeah well the other thing to know, and especially with Wizards of the Coast and these bigger companies, is that everything is planned like a year in advance or more. Right? They announced this, I think a, at least a year ago, they announced Planescape more than a year in advance. And I think they announced at least six months ago that this was going to be a three-book set of six, three 64-page books. And that, you know, they showed off covers and stuff. Because it has to get to the printer, and the printer is in China usually, and they got to ship all these things around. So these books have been written for about a year or so before they come out. So when this stuff was happening, like, what was going on with the company a year ago? It's not a reflection of what's going on with them right now. It's what was happening when they were in process. Do you think maybe there could have be like some COVID related issues in there? Maybe, but it's an entire design. It, it it's a design decision that everyone would have had to sort of sign off on to do it in this format, rather than a normal book format, which seems very strange. Um, I also don't feel like COVID has had less of an effect on this part of the game industry, like writing material and like producing it and playtesting it, given how much role-playing games moved online. Um, I would say that the acquisition of D&D Beyond by Wizards of the Coast was definitely a response to COVID as they saw how much online play was happening and decided that they wanted a bigger slice of that market. We want that money. Um, but I feel like this probably wasn't related to that. Uh, I feel like you can't blame COVID for the books being too short and not having the setting information that you wanted. Um, and there are two last little bits I want to mention with this. And these are changes that were made that I don't mind or, or just don't care about good or bad. Uh, the first one was that the astral plane replacing the, like, sea of stars or whatever, the place that was outside of the crystal spheres in original Spelljammer. Because in original Spelljammer, you had wild space that was the area around planets, and then the, like, sea between planets, or sea between solar systems, the between the crystal spheres. Replacing that with the astral sea was something I think they really changed in 4th edition when they talked about it. But it does not bother me one bit. It's fine. If you really want to go back to the other way, it's your campaign. You can do what you want. I would think that the Astral Sea is better because it gives you a little more to do in that, like, space in the void between stars. Um, and it ties into existing content for the settings, so it's good. It's just a... You can get to the Astral Sea via a spaceship now. That's cool. That's fine. 
Uh, and the other one is slightly more controversial, but I'm okay with it and just think it's cool. And that's a change to how stats are adjusted when you pick a race. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I, I like that. It's a good, good yeah, change. In, in this, all races get plus two to one stat and plus one to another, or plus one to three different stats. Uh, this is sort of in keeping with the alternate change that was introduced in Tasha's uh, Big Book of Everything. Whatever Cauldron that, of Everything. Cauldron of Everything. Whatever. Tasha's Big Book of Stuff. Um, it's consistent with that. It's fine. Um, it's interesting to compare it to what's currently being presented in the playtest material for one D&D, D&D 1, whatever the next edition is going to be. D&D 5.5, I think, is what everyone's going to end up calling it, even if Wizards of the Coast doesn't officially, which moves the, uh, stat bonuses away from being racial linked to races at all. And puts them onto backgrounds. Which, again, I think is interesting and more good. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's going to be a good change. I know there's a lot of nerds the, out there screaming about it, but it's it'll be better for everybody. Yeah, I, I like it. I feel like it pushes the versatility in the same way that 3rd Edition removing the restrictions on being certain races to play certain classes did. You, before that, you couldn't be a halfling paladin. You had to be a human if you wanted to be a paladin. You couldn't be a whatever. There were a bunch. There were restrictions in like second edition on what race you could be in order to play certain classes, and getting rid of that was good and a totally great decision for third edition. In this, they're pushing that versatility even more, kind of riding the line that player characters by definition are not typical examples of a specific race. Yeah, they're you're exceptional be members of a race. Um because you're heroes. So you shouldn't have to be limited by like what the race is known for. So you could be a half orc wizard who's very very smart um just because you're an exceptional member of you're an exceptional half orc. Even if normal half-orcs aren't known for their smarts, you can be, and you don't have to be penalized by the racial bonuses not being linked to that. So I think it's a fine change. I have no problem with it. I don't really care that much. Uh, hopefully the new playtest stuff is actually good. We'll see. Uh, that's at least two years out. Um, they've sort of announced that they're going to be producing the new material for that for 2024. So, you know, like we said, it, several years in advance, they got to start playtesting stuff. Oh, they obviously didn't playtest Spelljammer. Oh, they clearly did. It's not the it's not the rules that are missing. It's the setting material. Like, the monsters would have been playtested and the monsters are fine. The ships would have been playtested and the ships are fine. The races got extensively playtested and the races are fine. The setting doesn't get playtested, and it's missing. But I feel like as a playtester, that would be something that you would make note of. The problem with that is that a lot of the playtesting is done by basically handing the stat blocks and stuff to various groups and saying, use this in your group and tell us if it's balanced or not. And you can't do that with the entire guide to the setting because you have to write the entire guide to the setting and you don't care about balance for that. Uh, Playtesting a setting is not something you do. Setting is lore and not balance. I will note that, speaking of Eberron again, Keith Baker, the original author of Eberron and sort of... I don't know that he's worked on it ex extensively for 5th edition, had an excellent post, a very long post about how to do Spelljammer in Eberron. And it has more setting material and more interesting villains and more, like, coherent plot ideas than anything in the official book. So, Burn on maybe look into that. Wizards. Maybe look into that blog post that describes, like, how to do a space race-style thing with Spelljammer ships. And, yeah, it it's a very strong concept... And it talks a lot about how you would integrate it with 
Everon and what to do in the space there of. And it's, uh, yeah, mo more coherent than the setting material in the official book. Wizards, why you gotta break my heart? I expected this from GW, not from you. And that's our Spelljammer Part 2. Yay. Yay. So, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. And today, I'm going to talk about Rick and Morty Total Rickall Card Game. Morty, it's going to be it's gonna be a quick 20-minute uh, quick game, in and out. It is actually a quick game, so not wrong there, Rick. Uh, Total Rickall is an episode of Rick and Morty from Season 2 about psychic parasites infiltrating the house and having to murder them all. Uh, the game is essentially that premise. It is Hidden Identity, where the players and a series of weird and wacky characters out on the table have hidden identities. Some of them, most of the ones on the table, are psychic parasites and need to be killed. Some of them are not psychic parasites, and if you kill them, you lose. You play various cards based on the characters from the show to do this, either revealing what things are or murdering them or, like finding out who's real and who's a parasite, and then... Not saying anything about it. Yeah, not saying anything about it. Essentially, the parasite players win if they keep parasites alive. The real players kill all the parasites or kill a sufficient number of the parasites to win. That's the goal. Um, the game plays quite quickly. It's a nice little card game. It's only like 12 bucks on Amazon or at your local retailer. It might be 12 to $15. It's an easy party game kind of thing. Uh, it's got the correct art style for Rick and Morty because, of course, it does. Um, yeah. I haven't paid that much attention to the show in recent seasons, but this one is, this is a solid enough game. I mean, it got me to watch the show, so it did yeah, something, Yeah, it's a right? fun little... It's a fun little game. Uh, it has a co-op mode and it has a easy co-op mode as well where the players don't have hidden identities. It's just the parasites on the field. So if you don't like having to work against other players, you don't have to. And yeah, I would recommend it. I own it. It's cheap. It's easy. It's fast. This is a little bit of deduction. Yeah, it's fun. Yep, it's a good one. I've played it. Go, you should go. Hundred podcasts, Rick and Morty, and that's our show. As always, thank you for listening. Rate, like, subscribe, etc. Follow us on Twitter at Knoll Country or Instagram at Knoll Country. I'll be posting those maps that I've made onto Twitter. So if you want a necromantic skyship, there you go. Um, Ed, what do you got? Oh, uh, you can follow me at Anna Madness and see what I'm doing. Uh, you can support with your money dollars. Uh, True Colors United to make sure that all the queer kids have homes to go to. Donate to your local reproductive justice fund. Uh, don't talk to the cops. Support the Ukrainian workers. They kind of got screwed over by their government. Um, and go Knowles. Go Knowles. Go Knowles.